this January 6th rioter, the one in the Q shirt at the front of the pack here, his name is Douglas Austin Jensen. He is now famous for having chased Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman up the stairs in the Capitol. But he actually did not even know what building he was invading on January 6th. This is me touching the White House. Storm the White House. That's what we do. Touching the White House. Very close, but still a few blocks down Pennsylvania Avenue, Mr. Jensen. Anyway, despite not knowing where he was, Jensen did know why he was there, wherever there was. This is from his interview with FBI agents two days after the attack on the Capitol. Quote, I went in there. I wanted, you know, I wanted to stop this bleep, the Pence and all that. Pence was supposed to be the hero to save the day, and he didn't. And when this rioter was asked what got him there in the first place, he said quite clearly Trump's posts. Trump posted, make sure you're there, January 6th. Douglas Austin Jensen cited Donald Trump specifically as the reason he went to the Capitol that day. And he is not alone in that. More than a thousand people, a thousand people have been arrested for their roles in the January 6th riot so far. The nonprofit group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, also known as CREW, that group combed through all of the public legal filings related to January 6th defendants. And they found that at least 174 of those defendants said, in one way or another, that they were answering Donald Trump's calls when they traveled to Washington and joined the violent attack. That is more than one in 10 January 6th defendants. And those are just the ones that this nonprofit could prove for certain were incited by Trump. 94 of them specifically cited Trump's remarks on January 6th as why they swarmed the Capitol. But in terms of deciding to make the trip to Washington in the very first place, this nonprofit found the same thing happening over and over again. Evidence of January 6th rioters planning during the same few days in late December of 2020, planning that they would go to Washington. This Capitol writer from Iowa sent a Facebook message on December 21st saying, we're going back to Washington, January 6th. Trump has called all patriots. If the electors don't elect, we will be forced into civil war. On December 22nd, the leader of the Florida chapter of the Oath Keepers sent this message. We are thinking this is the plan. He wants us to get the bleep kicked off. Trump said it's going to be wild. He wants us to make it wild. And all of those message came sh- all of those messages came shortly after this one. A tweet from President Trump at 1:42 in the morning on December 19th. Big protest in DC on January 6th. Be there will be wild. Now that middle of the night tweet, it does not seem to have come out of thin air. We are seeing more and more reporting that special counsel Jack Smith is now zeroing in on a White House meeting that ended just after midnight that very night, just over an hour before Trump sent that will be wild tweet. You might remember this meeting because of the headlines about how the arguments during that meeting got so heated that they nearly ended in a fistfight. That is not typically what happens in White House meetings, at least as far as I know. Anyway, it was a six-hour-plus meeting in which Trump aides, who were trying to push election fraud claims, people like Trump's lawyers Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and his former national security advisor Michael Flynn, they all tried to use bogus fraud claims to convince Trump to adopt one drastic plan of action or another. 
And Trump's White House legal team fought back, debunking those fraud claims and reportedly physically threatening to actually fight over them. This was the meeting in which Trump was presented with a draft executive order that would have directed the U.S. military to seize voting machines all over the country. Trump reportedly considered that executive order seriously enough that he called his national security advisor on speakerphone again during this meeting so he could get his opinion. Should we use martial law to overturn an election? Phone a friend. Another one of the plans floated that night involved making Trump lawyer Sidney Powell a special counsel to investigate election fraud. Remember how in the Dominion voting systems lawsuit against Fox News, we got text messages from Fox hosts describing Sidney Powell? In November of 2020, Tucker Carlson texted, texted Laura Ingraham, Sidney Powell is lying, by the way. I caught her. It's insane. Ingram responded, Sidney is a complete nut. No one will work with her. Ditto with Rudy. That was what Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram thought of Sidney Powell a month before this White House meeting. But Trump actually considered making Sidney Powell a special counsel. In Bob Woodward and Robert Costa's book, Peril, they reported that Trump called his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, in in that meeting too, also on speakerphone. Make Powell a special counsel, Trump reportedly said. Mark, you, you get her the forms. Give her the forms to onboard her. Again, that meeting, pitching and seriously considering ideas this boffo, that lasted more than six hours. It was so long and so heated that the meeting moved from room to room throughout the White House with people just arguing and yelling at each other until past midnight. And we don't know how and we don't know exactly why, but right after all of those wild gonzo ideas fell apart, just about an hour after the end of that meeting, Trump seems to have settled on something. Quote, big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there. Will be wild. After that meeting, literally hours after it, came Trump's push to get people to the Capitol on January 6th, to get people specifically to pressure Vice President Mike Pence that day to not certify the results of the presidential election. And in the years and months since then, that plan has poisoned our politics in ways we are still dealing with today. Republicans across the country still think that what Mike Pence did did not do that day was wrong, that it was a grievous error that they believe must be corrected. This was presidential candidate Mike Pence in Iowa early this week responding to just that. Do you ever second guess yourself? That was a constitutional right that you had to send those votes back to the states. It was not like you were going to personally elect him. We all know by the number of votes that were there who won that election. You let me changed speak to that history for this country. Yeah, let me let me speak to the issue because I think it's it's an issue that continues to be misunderstood. But I know by God's grace I did exactly what the Constitution of the United States required of me that day. I kept my you never want to let Washington, D.C. run election. You certainly would never want one person in Washington, D.C. to decide who the president of the United States is. You weren't deciding. You were just sending it back to the states. The Constitution of the United States, in Article 2, says the job of the vice president is to serve as the presiding officer of a joint session where you open and count the votes. Don't take my word for it. Go read the Constitution. 
I really, I say this with great affection and respect. The Constitution affords no authority for the Vice President or anyone else to reject votes or return votes to the states. Never been done before, should never be done in the future. I'm sorry, ma'am, but that's actually what the Constitution says. No Vice President in American history ever asserted the authority that you have been convinced that I had. But I want to tell you, with all due respect, I said before, I said when I announced President Trump was wrong about my authority that day, and he's still wrong. I believe it with all my heart. Joining me now are MSNBC legal analyst Lisa Rubin and Christy Greenberg, a former federal prosecutor and former deputy chief of the criminal division in the Southern District of New York. Thank you both for joining me tonight. Um, Lisa, you and I have talked about this meeting that happened on December 18th into December 19th. Uh, Special counsel Jack Smith is presumably talking about it with his own investigators right now. And I guess I'd love both of your perspectives. I'll start with you, Lisa, in terms of you know, what this meeting represents to them in the larger investigation into Trump's role on January 6th. Let me, I think it represents two things. And let me start with the second one first. That meeting is the pivot point, And you talked about this in your introduction. Somehow between December 18th and the early morning of December 19th, Trump's theory of the election fraud morphed from some sort of dominion voting, foreign interference theory to Let's focus on state legislators. Let's see what we can do on January 6th itself. Let's bring people to the Capitol to protest. Be there will be wild. And one of the things I think might be interesting to prosecutors is that after the White House staff left the meeting that night, there were a few people that were still in the room with President Trump for maybe up to an hour. And those people include Mark Meadows, Rudy Giuliani, and Sidney Powell. And exactly what was discussed in that meeting when folks like Eric Hirschman and Pat Cipollone and Derek Lyons, part of the White House staff, Team left. Team Normal, as yes. they call themselves. Yes. Team Normal, who had already been at you know wit's end with Team Crazy, Sidney Powell and Byrne and Flynn, almost coming to fisticuffs with them, right? What happened after Team Normal left, I think is of central interest to prosecutors here. Christy, it's it's meaningful because it, it shows this ADBC sort of like transition to the January 6th plot, right? And intent, but also the fact that Team Normal was in the room is super relevant here too, right? Because it's, and correct me if I'm wrong, it would be evidence that Trump knew what he was doing was fraudulent, right? Absolutely. So you have the grownups in the room who are saying, there was no election fraud. You lost every lawsuit you brought. And this is completely bogus. And these plans from the three stooges that are in the room, Mike Flynn, Sidney Powell, and, and the Overstock guy, Patrick Byrne, like these plans are preposterous. And you can't possibly declare martial law. You don't have the authority to have military come in and seize these voting machines. And so when you have the grownups saying this is what this is what's going on, you then have Trump having knowledge and understanding what's going on. And so at that point, what does he do? Now you have that tweet, and that is central to his state of mind. Right. Right. What is his intent here? These other plans didn't work. I still want to lie. I still want to cheat. And I still want to steal this election. So how am I going to get there? Well, I'm going to come up with a new plan. Let's fire up my base, inflame them, tell them still, even though I know there's no election fraud, tell them there's election fraud and to be there and to stop the count. There's intent, there's motive, there's knowledge. It's a great piece of evidence for the prosecutors, and that's why they're focused. And it's also a great piece of evidence. Again, correct me if I'm wrong, I did not go to law school on like both of you. 
But it's not a privileged conversation, right? You can't hide behind this, Lisa, because of the presence of people like Sidney Powell and, well, Patrick Byrne, Patrick Byrne right? I mean, can you I, talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, Christy and I can both tell you that there is no privilege in this conversation. There's no attorney-client privilege because there are people there who, to put it in layman's terms, are neither attorneys nor clients, right? They're not affiliated with the campaign. They're certainly not with the White House. And they are not clients either. And so that destroys any privilege that could have attached to that conversation. Or that people would want to hide behind, right? That's right. And, you know, President Trump has litigated executive privilege thoroughly. He was found not to be able to claim executive privilege for conversations with people like Mark Meadows. If he can't claim it when he's alone with Mark Meadows, he's certainly not going to be able to claim it for a meeting that involves like 18 people, including (laughs) Patrick Byrne and Sidney Powell. Right. And Mike Flynn. Let me ask you, because you talked about state of mind. It seems like when we put all these pieces together, the dribs and drabs, we're getting the reporting about what the special counsel is doing. They seem to be making a very concerted effort to get at Trump's state of mind and the fact that he knew the claims he was making were fraudulent, whether it's the ads that the super PAC was taking out and the low level, you know, copywriters who knew this stuff is fake, whether it's the conversations he has with state officials suggesting they throw effectively the election for him or whether it's this meeting in the White House, they seem to be getting at their it's they're chasing the same bone in all of that. Is that right? Like they want to show Trump knew he was lying. Right. You need to show intent to show that he committed a crime here. And it's interesting, that meeting happened December 18th. So in mid-December, you also have Cassidy Hutchinson, who said that around that same time in mid-December, Trump had a conversation with Mark Meadows that she overheard, where he said, I lost. I don't want people to know that I lost. So again, it's a lot of corroboration. You know, you're going to have witness testimony, and then you're going to have the different witnesses corroborating one another. What did Donald Trump say? What was said in front of him? What did he know at different points? And how did that shape his actions and what he intended to do next? Can I ask a question just because we all know a lot about this meeting. It's been reported on. Why are we only hearing about the DOJ zeroing in on this now? I mean, we all remember when the January 6th committee held its hearings last summer, focused on this, Is the DOJ following the lead of Congress? Unfortunately, yes. Uh, The fact that this investigation was only opened in April of 2022 uh, is is ludicrous, really. Um, You had referrals way back in early 2021 from the National Archives and from state AGs. You had the media reporting on this. You then had televised hearings from the House Select Committee. And then you had a an opinion from Judge Carter in the Central District of California in March of 2022, a month before DOJ opened, which said the illegality of this plan is obvious and you need to have accountability. You need to investigate to make sure January 6th doesn't happen again. And only after that opinion a month later does the investigation get opened. You know, you have the attorney general, who I have great respect for, saying no one is above the law. But when you sit on your hands for 15 months and you don't investigate, there's a problem. But who didn't sit on her hands? Fannie Willis. She opened her investigation yeah. in Georgia, you know, shortly thereafter, and she got moving. And so I think right now, in terms of timing, Jack Smith is up against the clock. And, you know, he's Ray Charles in this scenario. He's got Georgia on his mind yeah. because he's running up against their timetable in terms of charges that may be brought in August. And in the meantime, Giuliani, we didn't even get to talk about this, Lisa, but Rudy Giuliani. 
is potentially going to be disbarred. Yeah, Rudy Giuliani. Well, he's already lost his law license in New York. Yes. He's been suspended from the practice of law in both New York and D.C. while this D.C. bar investigation was ongoing. And now there has been a recommendation that he should lose his law license. It is the greatest amount of discipline that one state bar can impose on a lawyer. His lawyers were arguing that something much less severe, like a sanction or a fine, should be given to him. No, the D.C. bar is not having that. And so we will continue to see them go through their process. But Rudy Giuliani is also the linchpin to this investigation, too. Rudy Giuliani, the spotlight is on you. Lisa Rubin, Chrissy Greenberg, thanks for being here, ladies. I really appreciate it. Okay, we have a whole lot to get get, get to this evening. Up next, he is responsible for helping spread a deadly disease outbreak. And now he could win in the early primary contests. And no, I am not talking about Donald Trump or Governor Ron DeSantis. I will explain who I am talking about next. And later, what happens when educators are told to teach their students about one of history's most famous race massacres without talking about race? How red states are rewriting history. That's ahead. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console console Smart thermostat. Set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. I want to bring you a story first covered over here on MSNBC this week by my brilliant colleague, Mehdi Hassan. In late 2019, just months before the global COVID pandemic was underway, the island nation of Samoa was dealing with a different kind of outbreak, measles, a disease for which vaccines have been available for over half a century. Measles was suddenly sweeping through Samoa. It was infecting and it was killing people. And most of the people who died there were children. This is the biggest increase in deaths we've seen since records began. The figure of 32 dead is up from 25 only yesterday. These hospitals aren't designed to deal with this. And I think the minute you're getting hospitals running at two and 300 percent capacity, I think that speaks for itself. It's incredibly serious. At the height of the crisis, nearly one in 50 Samoans had contracted measles. One in 50. So the government ordered lockdowns and told people in distress to put a red flag outside their homes. 83 people, most of them children under the age of four, 83 people died from the disease. Charities from other countries had to ship children's coffins to the island to help with a shortage there. So why were so many people contracting contracting this disease for which we already have a vaccine? Well, it started in 2018 when two infants died after receiving the measles vaccine. 
And it turned out to be a case of human error. Nurses had accidentally mixed the vaccine with another drug, which led to the infant's deaths. But in the aftermath, panic about vaccinations in general, that spread quickly in Samoa. And that is when the American anti-vaccine movement swept in and poured fuel on the fire. A group called Children's Health Defense started a social media campaign to stoke skepticism about the safety of the vaccines that those two infants had received. And that campaign worked. Measles vaccination rates for infants in Samoa went from 92% in 2013 to just 40% by 2018. The leader of Children's Health Defense, that American anti-vax group, the leader was a scion of an American political dynasty, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the man who is now challenging Joe Biden for the Democratic presidential nomination. But during that period, as vaccine skepticism was spreading on Samoa, RFK Jr. became a local celebrity in the country. He was an honored guest of the Samoan prime minister, and he would later tell a Samoan paper that the prime minister came to share RFK Jr.'s skepticism about vaccines. And around that time, the Samoan prime minister halted his country's infant measles vaccine program which goes a very long way in explaining why vaccination rates dropped so very precipitously in Samoa and dozens of children died. And then once the outbreak of measles was underway, RFK Jr.'s anti-vax group tried to blame the outbreak on the vaccines themselves, saying vaccinated children were shedding the virus and spreading it. That claim was quickly contradicted by health experts. When doctors finally got the disease under control by pushing vaccination rates back up, RFK Jr. continued to cast doubt on the effectiveness of vaccines. The thing that cured it was nutrition and clean water, not the vaccine. That claim was patently untrue. But that dangerous and that deadly anti-vax campaign is part of the legacy of RFK Jr. It is the kind of thing that might disqualify you from running for the president, from running for the presidency in the Democratic Party. But RFK Jr.'s long shot campaign against President Biden does not appear to be going away anytime soon. Some polls have found him polling as high as 21 percent among the Democratic primary electorate. More recent poll put him at around 9 percent in New Hampshire, but still found he has higher favorability numbers than either Joe Biden or Donald Trump. Now, some of that may be trading on his famous Kennedy name, but some of that may also be the support he is getting from very powerful sources. Tech billionaire and Twitter founder Jack Dorsey has endorsed RFK Jr.'s bid. Elon Musk hosted RFK Jr. on Twitter for a freewheeling discussion where the candidate blamed America's epidemic of mass shootings on antidepressants. A super PAC supporting his campaign has already raised millions of dollars. And weirdly, RFK Jr. may actually have a shot at winning early primary contests in places like Iowa and New Hampshire, where President Biden may not actually appear on the ballot as a consequence of him trying to change the Democratic Party's primary calendar. So in an era when people no longer have the luxury of writing off kooky heirs with famous last names, how exactly should Democrats deal with this RFK Jr. problem? 
Joining us now is Simone Sanders Townsend, former staffer for Vice President Harris, a former campaign staffer for the Biden and Sanders campaign, and of course, the host of Simone on MSNBC. Simone, thanks for joining me tonight. I just let me just first get your thoughts on the traction that RFK Jr. has gotten from Democrats, potentially independents, and pretty powerful, presumably well-educated business minds like Jack Dorsey. And I know there's a big asterisk next to his name, but Elon Musk and mm -hmm. others. I mean, what does that say to you about the candidate and the strategy? Well, if it were not RFK Jr., I mean, who is a conspiracy theorist, an anti-vaxxer, someone who has espoused just, frankly, lies about our, our public health system, lies that can and have um, gotten people killed, if it wasn't him and it was, you know, just a, a, a random, run-of-the-mill businessman uh, who was seemingly normal, I, I wouldn't be as surprised. But I am surprised that people have latched on to someone that has espoused views such as his. But— on the other hand, I'm not surprised that people are looking for um, some—what's the word I've heard out there, Alex? Some some variety. I, I do think—I was just at a, at a, at a conference um, for a, a church group, a, a large church denomination the other day. I was moderating a conversation at that conference, and in the Q&A, someone asked the panelists about— uh, why there are no Democratic primaries. And the panelists went through the—went the, through and explained what the process was, and and um, Congresswoman Jasmine Crockett sat on that panel and, frankly, gave, I think, one of the best defenses of a Joe Biden re-election I had ever seen um, a, a sitting member of Congress give in a room like that. I was like, oh, wow, they might need to call her. So I think there are people out there that say, we— don't we want variety? We want choice. You keep telling us the people have the power. Why don't the people have the power? That is bumping up against the reality of our two-party system here in America. In America, there are two political parties, the two political party apparatuses, the Republican Party apparatus and the Democratic Party apparatus. That is the function through which national elections are run. And if people would like to change that, and I understand there are folks out there that would like to do so, then they have to do the work of building, in my opinion, from the ground up, grassroots efforts and get on the ballot across the country when it is not a presidential election year. Yeah, and I get that people may want variety at this stage of the game, but when you mm -hmm. actually listen to— if you take the Kennedy part away from his name, he is saying stuff that is way, way out there. Rebecca Traster in New York Magazine sort of details some of the misinformation that he's spreading, suggesting that 5G high-speed Internet towers are being used to harvest our data and control our behavior, positing, again, we, as we mentioned, a link between mass shootings and antidepressant use. He told Joe Rogan that Wi-Fi pierces the blood-brain barrier and causes leaky brain and claims the presence of atrazine in the water supply has contributed to depression and gender dysphoria. I mean, this is not someone who has traditional Democratic views or traditional American views about our society writ large. I mean, I, I think a lot of us think that misinformation is relegated largely to the fringe right. But RFK hmm. Jr. proves that there is a hunger or a paranoia and a, a latching on to misinformation. This notion that the system is rigged against you is frequently like it's, it's relegated to uh, the economic discussion, but clearly there is an appetite for seeing everything as rigged against us. And what does oh, that tell absolutely. you about— Yeah, go ahead. 
Oh, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it would be, um, uh, people would be sorely mistaken to believe that misinformation and disinformation only runs rampant um, in the right-wing spaces in um, American politics. Uh, I think misinformation and disinformation knows, uh, stops at no one political party. But the more people learn about um, RFK Jr.'s positions, Alex, they are, in fact, unpopular. If you will note on the campaign trail, uh, he has not espoused the same anti-vaccine rhetoric using the same words that he did prior to him being a candidate. He talks about ending um, chronic diseases, right, or, or, or chronic illness. Um, he, he shrouds the, the words because— his positions are widely unpopular. Um, so I, I think it is very important that if people are going to talk about RFK Jr., if folks are going to um, give, give, give space to what, in fact, he is doing, it is very important that folks are honest about what he is saying, just as you have been here on this program. And I also think it's, it's, it is a worthwhile conversation to have, right, about— should folks—is uh, this system that is set up in America, the way in which we elect presidents and have done so for, you know, d decades and eons at this point, is this—is this a system that best represents and speaks to the people? I think that's a fine conversation to have. But folks have to understand that you can have that conversation, but you also have to understand what the reality is. And the reality of the current climate and the current setup is, in fact, that— there will be not, there will not be a competitive Democratic primary because the incumbent president is a Democrat and is running. The Republican, the Democratic National Committee is not going to facilitate a, a competitive process, meaning there won't be debates. Now, some people, when I say that, I have been widely attacked. I was at a restaurant last week with my husband, uh, Alex, and the man who was serving us was like, you was that girl off MSNBC telling people they can't debate. That, y'all, I'm just telling y'all what the facts are. And I think it's very important that people understand the facts because those only those who know the rules can adequately play the game. Yeah, the facts are in short supply on the campaign of Robert F. Kennedy Jr. <laughs> Simone Sanders-Townsend, always a pleasure, my friend. Host of Good Simone, weekends at 4 p.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC. Great to see you, Simone. Thanks for joining me. We have still more to come this evening, including one education official in Oklahoma who is twisting history into a knot in order to deny, to deny the truth behind one of the most shameful episodes of racial violence in this country. Stay with us. We will be back with more. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.
We were going to show you some video of Viola Ford Fletcher, who was the oldest of the three living survivors of the Tulsa race massacre when she was asking Congress for justice and reparations in May of 2021. And she spoke a century after a white mob attacked a bustling, economically independent black neighborhood in the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was the largest instance of race-based violence in American history. The mob was riled up after the local paper published this article about an alleged incident between a black man named Dick Rowland and a white woman that happened on an elevator. The mob killed as many as 300 black residents and demolished 35 city blocks of what was then called Black Wall Street, which caused the equivalent of $27 million of damage in today's dollars. It was an historic wrong, and at 109 years old, Violet Fletcher is still waiting to see it made right. The survivors of the Tulsa race massacre, the victims and their descendants, they are still fighting for reparations. Despite all that, this is how the state superintendent of public instruction suggests that its history of racial terror should be taught. I would never tell a kid that because of your array, because of your color of your skin, or your gender, or anything like that, you are less of a person or, an, or are inherently racist. That doesn't mean you don't judge the actions of individuals. Oh, you can absolutely, that, historically you should. This was right, this was wrong. They did this for this reason. But to say it was inherent in the, because of their skin is where I say that is critical race theory. It was a semi-incoherent response after someone asked the superintendent, Ryan Walters, about how teaching Tulsa, a teaching about Tulsa's race massacre might exist outside of the superintendent's current war on critical race theory. And it was a very contentious meeting held effectively last night to address concerns from both parents and teachers about the superintendent's efforts to keep education in Oklahoma woke free. Now, the superintendent's anti-woke crusade has drawn a lot of criticism in his nearly six months on the job, even from Republicans who think his focus is misdirected. One state senator told a local paper he'd like to see him settle down and actually start talking about reading, writing and arithmetic and how to bring up test scores. And by the way, there is plenty of work for Superintendent Walters to do on that front because Oklahoma's education system is currently second to last in the country. But instead, Mr. Walters is trying to fight CRT and the woke history about how 300 Tulsans were killed in large part because they were black and thriving. What is happening here in Oklahoma is but one front in the Republican war on woke, and it is just the latest example of its devastating effect on American education. Now, we have already seen a lot of this in the state of Florida, where since Governor Ron DeSantis began his campaign to rid the state of woke ideology, State records indicate that teachers are leaving their positions at some of Florida's largest universities, and schools are finding it difficult to fill those vacancies, especially in subjects the governor has targeted. The University of Florida's African-American Studies Department made nine attempts to fill just three positions. None of the offers were accepted. And then last week, after the Supreme Court's conservative majority ruled to overturn affirmative action, Wisconsin's Republican State Assembly announced that the legislature would take action to ban state grants designated for minority undergraduate students. We are going to have more on the anti-woke crusade with a very important guest just ahead. Stay with us. On July 1st, 
A slate of new statutes went into effect in Tennessee, including a law that prevents transgender people from changing their driver's license to match their gender identities by narrowly defining male and female. The law included additional restrictions targeting trans youth and their health care decisions. But at least for now, those measures have been blocked by a federal judge. In the past year alone, it has become a Republican Party priority to enact invasive legislation specifically targeting trans people. In Florida, several laws took effect last week, keeping teachers, faculty and students from using the pronouns of their choice, restricting bathroom choice and cracking down on drag shows by threatening to revoke liquor licenses of businesses that allow minors into adult live performances, though that specific measure has also been blocked in court for now. In Texas, Republicans also passed a bill banning, quote, sexually oriented performances, a.k.a. drag shows, in the presence of minors. Nearly 500 bills have been proposed in state legislatures across the country, aiming to restrict everything from pronouns to participation in school sports. All of it is part of a national conservative anti-woke crusade, a vast multifaceted effort that takes aim at everything from private sector inclusion efforts to the teaching of history. Joining me now is Sarah McBride, who became the country's first openly transgender state senator when she won a state seat on the Delaware State Senate as a Democrat in the year 2020. And she is now running for the U.S. Congress, where if she wins, she would make history once again as the first trans person ever elected to Congress. Senator McBride, thanks for time tonight. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So the numbers are staggering. Just the uptick in these anti-trans laws, legislations, the ideas of ways in which you can punish a whole community of people. Why do you think this is happening now? Is it is it fear? Is it strategy? Is it both? Well, I think it's a, a little bit of both. I think right now the extreme Republican Party is trying to distract from the fact that they have absolutely no agenda mm. for workers and families across the country. They're seeking to win elections by dividing and conquering. This is not a new strategy for them. This is a strategy they have used throughout history to seek to distract from their policy failures and to seek to drive wedges between voters. But ultimately, I think these types of policies may drum up passion among a small part of the ever-shrinking Republican base. But the reality is, is they are so out of touch with what is actually keeping voters up at night. Um, And I think that while these policies are central to their message right now, what we'll see in 2024 is what we saw in 2022, which is that these attacks ring hollow. And on top of that, they just don't wear well in history. Yeah. And I agree with you in terms of the, the, you know, being on the right side of history, the wrong side of history. I wonder how you see it as part of the broader portfolio of the anti-woke crusade. You know, we, we tried to play some sound in the last block of the state superintendent of public education who is saying that the Tulsa race massacre cannot be taught taking race into consideration. It actually says to say it was inherent that the massacre happened because of the color of their skin is critical race theory, right? You're talking about facts, history, and trying to literally whitewash what happened in the state. That is happening, you know, that that disenfranchisement, if you will, in terms of the teaching of history, the idea of reparations, that is happening across the board with everybody who is not a white, straight male, right? Whether it's women and bodily autonomy, whether it's a trans community, the LGBTQ plus community, people of color, there is a very virulent and powerful crusade that seems in a lot of ways to be successful. And I think that that it feels like it's born less out of strategy and more out of 
a palpable fear that the country is changing? I, I think there's without question a fear by Republican politicians about the demographic changes in this country. Yeah. And I think there's certainly a fear among some people about the changing demographics of this country. And I think what you've just articulated is a very clear example of the through line between all of these attacks. And I do think that it reinforces just how inextricably linked the fight for LGBTQ equality is with the fight for racial justice, with the fight for reproductive rights. Because ultimately, what we're seeing is an attempt to censor these topics out of our schools. What we're seeing is an attempt to roll back the clock on our progress and ultimately make this country less hospitable for people of color, for LGBTQ people, for women to thrive in and live in. What does it personally feel like, right? On one hand, you could be making history, which feels like a big step forward. And then you hear about what's happening at the state level, and it feels insanely retrograde. I mean, how do you think about this moment as a trans person? And how do you think about whether the the moral arc of the universe and which direction it's bending in? There is no question that the process toward progress in this country is not a linear process. Mm -hmm. It's often two steps forward and one step back. But I have seen too much change in my life to lose hope right now. Since coming out 10 years ago, I've seen more hearts and minds change. I've seen laws, pro-LGBTQ rights laws, pass around this country. My service in the Delaware State Senate would not have been comprehensible to me as a child. I have seen too much change Mm -hmm. to lose hope now. But I think ultimately... There are few things that can help to diversify the narrative of who LGBTQ people are than having an out trans member of Congress who's not just focused on trans rights, who's focused on all of the issues that matter, affordable early childhood education, paid family and medical leave, gun safety, reproductive rights. That helps to reinforce for people that trans people are part of the rich diversity of our country and that we have something to offer when we get to the table. Yeah, it will be a good day when they just refer to you as Congress, Congresswoman, and that's it. No, no explanation about your history-making and, role. And I will say that what I have seen throughout the last several years is that voters are fair-minded. They are judging candidates based on ideas, not on their identities. And I will just say in the last two weeks of this campaign, the number of people who have visited SarahMcBride.com to sign up to volunteer to donate has been incredibly empowering for me. And I know over the next year and a half of this campaign, we'll continue to demonstrate that voters care more about who's going to deliver for them than they do a candidate's gender. You are living through the change. Sarah McBride, Democratic State Senator. Thanks for your time tonight. Good luck out there. We'll be watching. Thank you. We'll be right back. It was inspired by the ancient Roman Pantheon, the classical domed building in central Rome, only it was supposed to be eight times bigger. That dome and the massive opening in the center of it was so gigantic that clouds would have formed inside the space there. And it wasn't just that one piece of imposing architecture. The goal was to do away with many of the existing buildings and have a whole city teeming with marble buildings and ode to the Roman Empire. At the time these plans were being drawn up in the 1930s, the leader of another country was focused on architecture as well. This building you see right here with its 216 arches was designed as an homage to the ancient Colosseum. And it was just one part of a whole district full of buildings and structures that were supposed to bring back the splendor of the Roman Empire and bring it into modern life. Now, there is nothing wrong with classical or neoclassical architecture or architecture that is inspired by it. In fact, that building, the one with all the arches, is now the world headquarters for Fendi. So that is 
a compliment, decidedly. But it is worth noting that the leading autocrats of the 20th century, they had a kind of fetish with neoclassical architecture. They wanted everything to be built in a way that would hearken back to the glory days of the Greek and Roman empires. All of the buildings and models I just showed you, they were works commissioned either by Hitler or Mussolini. And so given that history, it is no wonder that it raised a lot of eyebrows back in 2020 when then-President Donald Trump signed an executive order enshrining classical architecture as the preferred style for federal projects. Given his anti-democratic tendencies, it seemed, well, let's just say it was notable. When he took office, President Biden rescinded that order. But for his part, Donald Trump has not given up on the issue. Just a few months ago at CPAC, he promised to get rid of bad and ugly buildings and return to the classical style of Western civilization. But no longer is this just a pet issue for the former president. Now his allies in Congress are falling in lockstep. According to Politico, a new Republican-sponsored bill would declare classical architecture to be the default style for new federal buildings in Washington, and classical and traditional architecture to be the preferred style for most government buildings. How very democratic. That is our show for tonight.